Father in heaven, Lord, we once again pause and invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide at this time. In the Bible, we are promised that your Holy Spirit will guide and teach us into all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How to study the Bible, part two. Part two. I'm going to share about five or six steps, the basic steps that we can use as we approach a passage of Scripture. As you're studying it, as you're trying to find out what the passage of Scripture is saying, be it a chapter, be it a section of verses, a few steps that you can use to try as you go through a passage of Scripture to see what the meaning in the Bible is and what God is trying to say through the Scriptures to you. First step, get ready. As you approach the Scriptures, you want to try to be in a spiritual mindset. You have the mind uncluttered from you know, I don't know, what maybe you were studying in school the day before, when have your mind uncluttered by, you know, how much your boss is going to pay you for the next two weeks of work, your mind uncluttered by whether, you know, the LA Lakers just won the, whatever it is, the, is it the playoffs or whatever? I don't even know. Clear. Confess your sins. Before you open the Bible, before you study. And a key thing is to be humble, teachable, and ready to obey. If you're approaching the scriptures in a proud way, well, let me see what I can make the Bible do for me. You're not going to get much out of your Bible study. As opposed to let me see what God is going to say and speak to me as I open the Bible. It's different. Very different. You get ready. You need some resources. What's the first resource you need? A Bible. It can be good to have several translations. Maybe not every time you study the Bible, but it can be good to have them as reference when maybe you need them. KJV is the King James Version. NKJV is the New King James Version. Can be a handy Bible. To have alongside your King James, it simplifies some of the language. NASB, New American Standard Bible, another good translation um, to help you in your study. YLT, that's the one I put there because I like it. You know anyone know what that one is? Young's Literal Translation. I like that one. Kind of sometimes gives interesting phrases and how it's done. NIV. Bible dictionary, it's good to have a Bible dictionary. Maybe if you're reading about you know, a tribe or something in, in the Old Testament, you're not quite sure maybe the name of the place. The Bible dictionary is, like it says, a Bible dictionary. It will name the place and then give you a brief de uh, description of where that is, what happened there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a couple of, um, there, I think Eastern has a Bible dictionary. There's another one called Unger's Bible Dictionary. You can pick these up in most... Um, 
bookshops today, you go to your average, you know, Barnes & Noble or, or, or um, Borders or these are the bookshops, you can pick them up. They only cost you about $15 or so, but it's an excellent resource as you're studying the Bible to give you definition on certain terms, play, places, people, tribes, and things in the Bible that you may not understand and give you some of that background knowledge. A dictionary can be good to have as well. An English dictionary. So you can just, you know, sometimes words you don't understand, look in a dictionary, see what they mean. It can be good to have an older dictionary if you can get an older, older, older dictionary. I think one of the oldest dictionaries you can really get is the uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which kind of some of the words today which have changed meaning, it gives you some of the older meanings to the words in the English language, which can help because words change their meanings over time, as you well know. As good as you study your Bible, you sit down and resort. Another resource, good to one to have, is a concordance. Strong, as I find, is the best concordance. The concordance, if you're not sure what a concordance is, it takes every word in the Bible and shows you where that word is repeated. I mean, where that word comes in every single verse in the Bible. So say if you wanted to study faith. You go to your concordance, you look for faith, and have every single verse in the Bible where the word faith is mentioned. Then you could go and turn to every single verse and see what faith means here, what faith means there, what faith means in this verse, what faith means in that verse. Or as you're studying a verse and you, you, you cross-reference. A commentary set can be a good resource to have as well. There's several of them out there. You have the SDA Bible Commentary, which is a, a, <coughs> excuse me, a good resource to have. Um, it's fairly expensive, but if you can get a cheap one, then pick it up. If you can get an old one, I find sometimes I, go to, I like to go to used bookstores myself in places where there's an Adventist ghetto like Loma Linda. <laughs> and you sometimes find that some of these older folks that maybe have, I don't know, just don't want their books anymore, or maybe they passed away, they give their books to the shop and you can go and get them really cheap. I just let you know my secret now. Don't buy them all. But yeah, you can find, I mean, I bought an SDA commentary set for like $10. Perfect condition. It was a little bit faded, but it saved me about 300 bucks. I got it in a used bookstore. Um, that's also the best place, I believe, to find good Bibles as well. But all of that, another good thing, I haven't actually got it on the screen, is, and you can get this in the next one, you have a notebook, take your notes, then computer program. I mean, you can com your computer program can nullify all the above in a sense of having a literal book. I still think it's good to have the books as well, but your computer program can have all of that in a computer program. You have the logo software, which you can have the SDA Bible commentary on there. Accordance, if you're a Mac user, God bless you. I would suggest Accordance is probably the best um, Bible program. I believe it's designed specifically for the, the Macintosh computer. Um, you can buy the basic package and then buy your add-ons with all the different books as well. eSword, if I'm correct, is a free one. It's free and has a lot of these things on there. PC Study Bible, I just put it through the online. I think there's another one called Online something. But there's a whole lot of different Bible programs out there. You, you should, if you have a computer or a laptop and you have access to the Internet, you should not be without a Bible study computer program. Because you can just go to esaw.com.net or wherever it is and download one for free if you don't want to spend money on buying a more expensive one. So there's no excuse why any of you, as of tomorrow when you get home, shouldn't have a Bible program on your computer. If you have a computer and you have the internet, just go and download it. Bingo. And you've got your computer program.
So these are some resources to gather. And then in the computer bro, another resource, you can buy the hard book. Another good resource to have is called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, which takes a verse in the Bible, and then it will cross-reference the different, sometimes, words in that verse, or maybe a phrase in that verse, to different verses in the Bible. It's similar to a concordance, but it's a little bit more intelligent than a concordance in some ways. Saves you some time. And you can cross-reference a lot quicker with a treasury of scripture knowledge. If you have a computer program, you can have all these windows open at once and you're just like... You can have your King James here, your New King James here, your Strong's Concordance here, your commentary down here, and your Bible dictionary up here. And you can have it all there on one screen, just... And it maps down here. If you learn how to use these programs, you know, well... It saves you a whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy and also a whole lot of money. So, spiritual mindset, resources to gather. Third step, you've got your Bible text, you've got your Bible. The first thing to do is to do what? Pray. Second thing to do would be to? Read. It's not rocket science, but if you study a passage of Scripture, you should read this through several times before you're kind of going to move on from there. So you got your passage, you read it through once, maybe twice, maybe three times, maybe four times, maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven. You're just reading the passage through. 90% of Bible study is observation. You're observing what's in the passage. So as you're reading through the passage, you're reading through what well, first time. Then maybe after you've read through in your, in, 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 in your you know, your your preferred translation, then maybe you go to other translations and read through in those ones as well. Then maybe you read out loud. Maybe as well, you may be listening to it on an audio Bible as well. But you're reading through, you're reading through, you're reading through several, several times, and the aim of just reading through the passage several times, the main goal is to get the big picture. What's the big picture in this chapter? What's the big picture in these three chapters? I'm reading through maybe, I don't know, the Sermon on the Mount. What's an overarching big picture as I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount? Before you start maybe zooming in on verse 5 when it says, blessed are the so-and-so, you don't understand. You're reading for the big picture. You're asking yourself, do I understand this passage? Then as you're reading through, you start to ask these different questions, and these are all important questions that you must ask as you're reading through a passage. After you've read it, then you go back and ask these questions. You know, all too often when we're studying the Bible, what happens is we do this. We read the passage once, and almost before we finish reading it, we're trying to find out what it means straight away. You know, read Revelation. I wonder what this means. And people come to some weird conclusions. And part of the problem is they haven't simply just read it yet. First of all, you have to ask what it says before you can ask what it means. It sounds basic, but it's not in some ways. Read it through. What does it say? Ask questions. These are all basic questions that you have to ask as you read in the passage of Scripture. You've read it through. Now you go back and you ask the question. Number one, who was writing? Who's writing the passage of Scripture? Who was the author? Where did they come from? Who were they? Were they a prophet? So on, so on, and so forth. Were they a judge? Were they a king? Were they an apostle? Were they a disciple? Was it Jesus? Who was writing? Next one, to whom were they writing? Helps you give a context. 
Or if it's like, say, if you're reading the Gospels and Jesus is speaking, to who was Jesus speaking to when he said that? Was he speaking to the disciples? Was he speaking to the Pharisees? Was he speaking to the scribes? Was he speaking to some Gentile woman? And if you understand who he's speaking to, it helps you kind of give you a, a reference as to clearer where you're going with the passage of Scripture. And he spoke, Jesus spoke a certain way when he was rebuking the Pharisees, and he spoke different when he was speaking to someone maybe who was a Gentile. Do you understand? So find out who was writing, to who were they writing? Next question, when were they writing? What period of time were they writing in? What had taken place before? What was about to take place? What was happening when the person wrote? And you may also want to ask, what else has the writer written? And the last question. What else have they written? Gives you some kind of reference point. You're reading through 1 John and you're reading about the love of God. Well, what else has he written? He's read 2 John or 3 John. And you can kind of know, well, I'm going to go there first before I go elsewhere in the Bible to see what else he's written about this particular passage or subject or theme. So who was writing? To whom were they writing? When were they writing? What was happening when the person wrote? And what else has the writer written? These are general questions you ask as you look at the passage of Scripture. Start writing down your answers to these questions. Or at least be aware of it in your mind as you're going into the text. Be aware. What are you looking for as you're looking through the passage of Scripture? You're looking for key words. Maybe a word that the passage hinges on. If that's, if that's the case. Or you may be looking for repeated words. Something that comes up over and over and over again. Like you read Matthew chapter 24, what's a repeated word or phrase that comes up over and over again? Deceive. There's several, but deceive is one of them. Beware that no man deceive you. There's going to be prophets that come deceiving, deceiving. And you've got this kind of, that's one theme. There's, another, there's other themes as well that kind of come up over and over and over again. Revelation chapter 13, what's kind of one word? Or, or Daniel chapter 3, one word that comes up several times in that passage of Scripture? Worship. If you read through Daniel chapter 3, you read worship, 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 worshipeth, or whatever. It comes up several times in the passage, and you kind of say, well, maybe there's a theme of worship through this passage. It's a word that comes up several, several times in the same story in the context of the fiery furnace. Maybe there's something to this idea of worship in Daniel chapter 3. Revelation 13, you have a, and then you go there, and you, know, you see worship come up again and again and again and again and again. Repeated phrases, repeated words. Parallelisms, as you look in, especially in the Old Testament, things that parallel, you know, they're coming up, parallelisms, as you look at, especially in Psalms, Old Testament. Contrasts. And as you're going through all of this, take notes. I've put their marking Bible and question mark next to it. I believe it's best as you're studying your Bible not to mark it. At least your maybe primary Bible. But it's best to take notes on the side. It's not a cardinal rule, and neither if you mark your Bible is it a cardinal sin. Personally, I prefer to have a clean Bible, so it's just kind of like there's no markings in there. And it encourages me to kind of remember more by memory than maybe what's in there. So my Bible, 
every time I go to it, I can start from a clean slate, so to speak. But, you know, if you find marking your Bibles helpful for you, then, then maybe you wish to do that. But that's just a suggestion. So you're looking for keywords, repeated words, repeated phrases, parallelisms, contrast. As you're going through all this, you're taking notes. And remember, as I said earlier, 90% of your study is what? It's observation. You're observing what is in the passage. Who wrote it? When did they write it? Who were they writing it to? What happened around that time? So on, so on, and so on. You're looking at all these questions. You're observing this as you're going through the passage. Now, you're still at the observation stage here. You're still reading, observing. You're looking at the passage of Scripture. What does it mean? What does it say? Et cetera, et cetera. Turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Now, I preached a sermon on this chapter one time at uh, Advent Hope. I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but I just wanted, you know, as I was going through this, these principles I used as I was studying this chapter. Had a sermon from this very chapter from verses 12 to verse 31. I was reading through the chapter, reading through the chapter, reading through the chapter, reading through the chapter. And verse 12, the children of Israel did evil, verse 13. Verse 40, and they served the king of Eglon. Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then I came to verse 15, and as I was reading through the passage and observing it, something came out to me as I was reading. I was like, hmm, it's strange. Seems different. It got my attention. It was a key word as I go back to the, the passage. A key word that the passage I thought hinged on. So I was reading through verse 15. It said, The Lord raised up Ehud, the king, the son of Jira, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, king of Moab. The word that came out to me as I was reading was left-handed. Like, hang on a second. Every time it talks about David doing his bow and arrow and Jonathan, it doesn't say he was right-handed. But here it says the man was left-handed. Got my attention. Why does the Bible say he's left-handed? What's the purpose of that? The Bible doesn't waste words. So if something is in there, there's a reason for it. Why does it say left-handed when it never ever says right-handed? So I said it must be a key word. The passage hinges on it. Because as you read down through to verse 22, no, verse 16, the Bible says Ehud made a dagger of two edges and of a cubit length, and he put it under his raiment upon where? His right thigh. So he's left-handed. He puts the dagger on his right thigh, this is all interesting information that almost seems extra, maybe unnecessary, or is it? In the Bible, down in verse 21, says, And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and killed the king. And you read through the story. But as I was reading through, these are things that came out to my mind. I was like, left-handed, right thigh, left hand, right thigh, it all seems a little bit out of the ordinary. Why does the writer of Judges put that in there? Got my attention. Key word. Then the repeated word of left-handed, left eye, right hand, left, you know, you get the idea. So then I started to look for other places the word left-handed is mentioned in the Bible, and I found out it's only mentioned twice. So that again sparked my attention. This is something strange, because it doesn't come up a lot of times. One time here, one time in chapter 22, verse 16, I believe. 
So it kind of got my attention. So now I'm coming back to the passage and I'm, you know, observing, seeing the left-handed and so on, so on and so forth. Next step, draw preliminary what? Conclusions. So you've done your reading, you've got your resources, you've asked all the questions, who, what, where, why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And after you've asked all these questions, who, what, where, when, where, why, how, et cetera, you then start to draw your preliminary conclusions. You start piecing the picture together. Concentrating on what you do understand from the passage and what principles you can derive from the passage of Scripture. So what's the idea? What do you understand? What's the picture that the writer's trying to go? As I was reading this passage of Scripture, Judges chapter 3, I said, what's, what's the point? I'm piecing the pictures together. I've got a man who's left-handed. He gets a left hand. He puts a dagger on his right thigh. He pulls it out of his left hand and stabs the man. And I start piecing the picture together. I started to think, well, maybe it's something, maybe God used him because he was left-handed. Maybe that's the uniqueness about the story. The right thigh. Why is it on the right thigh? Why did he put it underneath his clothes? These are all questions I'm starting to ask myself as I'm looking down. And I'm starting to piece together what I thought was, you know, I'm coming to my conclusion. Well, maybe the right thigh was instrumental. Maybe the fact that the dagger's under the clothes not on top of the clothes, is instrumental as you read the passage. What principles can you derive from the specifics? I don't have time to go through the whole sermon. You can listen to it if you want. But as I was going through some of the principles, I started to wonder and look at bigger principles that God was trying to teach through the passage. The principle was not that God would use left-handed people as I came to what I believe was a conclusion that was in scriptures, is that left-handed represented something different. From this passage of scripture, that left-handed represented out of the ordinary. Because the Bible never uses left-handed people. Everyone's right-handed. And as you look in history, medieval history, even modern-day history, left-handed was something that was frowned upon. I started to put all this together, and I was like, well, left-handed was something out of the ordinary. It was something different. It was something that maybe was never used. Maybe it was something that he, would, he never got into the army, and yet God said, I'm going to use this person, and not only I'm going to use a son of Benjamin, was was the smallest tribe, I'm going to use someone who's from the left-handed. Maybe he didn't get into the army because he was left-handed, and God takes this person to use him to deliver his people. And the phrase left-handed, as I looked in the original, meant it meant um, shut of his right hand, meaning he was kind of paralyzed from his right hand and he could only use one hand. And I'm starting to put this picture together of a man who's left-handed, who's disadvantaged, who was probably overlooked for military service, and that's the man that God uses to deliver Israel. That's who God uses. Smallest tribe, left-handed, disadvantaged, deliver my people. What's the message God is trying to teach with us? I believe the conclusion as I was looking through this passage of Scripture, in simple terms, was that God can use anybody, and He often uses us because of our weaknesses. 
Our weaknesses do not give us an excuse for not serving God. Our weaknesses are often the reason why God wants to use us. Oh, you can't speak properly. Oh, could you be a preacher, please? You're very shy. I'd like you to go on cold water. Our weakness is often what qualifies us to work for God. So then do, do the conclusions fit with the larger biblical picture? Is that just unique to that chapter, or do you see that theme throughout the whole of Scripture? Then as you look through the parts in the Bible, you start to realize that God uses people that, quote-unquote, were underqualified all throughout the Bible. Disciples, under or overqualified? Underqualified. Jesus. Don't get me wrong here. Was he under or overqualified? In the sense, when you look at Jesus, would you expect him to be Messiah based on his earthly qualifications? No. David, Goliath, under or overqualified? You get the idea. So as I was looking at Judges chapter 3 and I asked a question, does it fit with a larger biblical picture? Yeah, it seems to fit with a larger biblical picture. That there's a habit of God doing this all throughout Scripture. Moses, I want you to go speak to Pharaoh. I can't speak. Doesn't matter. I'll give you words. It fits in with a larger biblical picture. So it's not a conclusion unique. It's a conclusion throughout Scripture. Does it fit with a spirit of prophecy? Can you, say, can you find... This theme throughout the spirit of prophecy, or if it's a, it, it does the spirit of prophecy particularly right on that passage of Scripture. And then you ask the question, what do the Bible commentaries say? What do other people say? Now remember, Bible commentaries, I have this on a later slide if we have time to get to it. You should treat a Bible commentary as your friend rather than specifically as your teacher. And if it's a non-Adventist Bible commentary... The closer you get to passages of Scripture that deal specifically maybe with eschatological prophecy, say Daniel or Revelation, end times, you find the less of a help they are, generally. A book that has been sealed by God until the end times is probably not a book that you're going to find best understood in a commentary that was written before the book was unsealed, if you understand. So be careful as you look at commentaries, but it's, you know, it, you know, as you're looking for historical context uh, and background, it can be good to say. And then finally, you can ask, what do other people say? It's always good to test your knowledge or what you've studied or the conclusion that you've drawn with other people as well. So you're not just coming up to private conclusion that seem way out of whack. But if it fits with a larger biblical picture, the spirit of prophecy, the Bible commentaries, then I would hope that spiritual-minded friends that you have would agree with it as well. Apply. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. Examine your own life, not other people. That's a key point. You're studying the Bible to examine yourself, not other people. You're studying the Bible to know what God teaches you about you, not like, oh, you're reading the Bible, it's like, oh man, that's a deep point. I need to share that with Brother X. He needs to hear that. Oh, that's a powerful point. I need to preach that because the, 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 the deacon in church needs to hear that. I've got to tell him. Mm -mm. No. You're studying the Bible to examine your own life, primarily. Not other people's life. You may want to ask yourself the question as you're applying it. Is there a key verse that you should memorize that's going to help you apply the lesson to your life? There's something that can just stick out. I remember that verse. I've got it. You know, you're studying a passage, a key verse. 
As you look, you got the spirit-led, you want to have, sorry, make spirit-led effort to apply the principles, and then pray and share. The Dead Sea is, why is the Dead Sea dead? Does it get fresh water every day, yes or no? Gallons and gallons of fresh water every single day comes into the Dead Sea. But because it doesn't give anything, it dies. The Sea of Galilee gets the same fresh water that the Dead Sea gets. River Jordan. River Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee, flows out of the Sea of Galilee, and it stays fresh. When Jesus was around, they fished in it. You can go there today, and you can still fish in it. There's plenty of fish there. And that same water flows out the Sea of Galilee, goes down the River Jordan, and it flows into the Dead Sea. Fresh water, living water. It goes into the Dead Sea. And as it goes into the Dead Sea, because it doesn't go anywhere, it dies. And it's the same with your Bible study, with your prayer life, with your spiritual life. You can receive, 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 receive. And you can be like the Sea of Galilee and stay alive if you give, 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 give. Your Bible study will add vibrancy to it. If you're receiving, you're studying the Bible, and you're sharing with other people. But if it's just something you hold to yourself, eventually it becomes very insular, very cocooned, and it just kind of dies up, dries up. Sharing is key to staying alive. It's key to your Bible study. So these seven things. What was the first one? The first one was to get ready, spiritual mindset. Second one was to gather your resources. Third one was to read several times, different translations. The third one was to ask the question. Well, that's the fourth one, isn't it? Ask questions. The fifth one was to be aware, key words, key phrases, repeated words, parallels, etc., the sixth one was to draw your preliminary conclusions from the passage, from all these questions that you've got in your mind. The seventh one is to confirm your conclusions. They do fit, as I go back one slide, they do fit with the larger biblical picture. They do fit with the spirit of prophecy. It seems that the conclusions I've studied to, yep, they make sense. Seventh step is then to apply it and to share it. These are some basic principles that you can approach a different, certain passage of Scripture with. As you're studying, be that even in your devotions, you can use this in your devotion. Be that as you're studying you know, the Gospels, maybe. You're going through, you're studying you know, the, the story of John, the Gospel of John. These are all things that you can do. Um, there's a couple of other pointers. A couple of other pointers. Where are we? Here. or summary of what we looked at. Let me just find it. Here's a couple of the pointers. It's kind of summarizing some of the things we've looked at. I'm just going to go through these slides fairly quickly and read through them. If you have any questions, in fact, someone told me I was going too fast, so I'll maybe slow down a bit. And that was always a complaint that I had when I was an evangelist. People said, slow down. I was always like, you need to listen quicker. <laughs> they said, but you have an English accent. We can't understand you. What can I say? 
I try to slow down. These are, we've looked at some of these things. These are just some basic pointers. Earnestly pray for help in your understanding. Read the passage in context if you need to read it repeatedly. You're noting for observations, various words. You're familiarizing yourself with the scripture, and you're asking to be a channel for God's blessings. I'm going to go through these ones quickly because someone asked me if they could have my presentation, and I said, no, you can't. It's mine. But I'm being soaking. It's going to go on the website. It's going to go on Audioverse. They're going to put the, the presentations on Audioverse, and you can just download them there, which will be easier than me getting 500 memory sticks and put them on my computer. So if you go to Audioverse, I'm going to give them the presentations, and you can download the presentations uh, from there. Um, use the best tools as you're studying. We looked at some of the resources already, the Bible, Spirit of Prophecy. I haven't got that on there, actually, but it is on there. Someone was asking me a question, actually, you know, if we're doing devotions with the Spirit of Prophecy in the Bible together and studying as well. It's a good way to do it. You know, the Conflict of the Ages series, if you've read the Conflict of the Ages, which is... Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, which covers the Old Testament, Desire of Ages, which covers the Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, which covers the, you know, Acts, and Great Controversy, which covers kind of from then, Revelation, till the end of the world. It's a five-part series that covers the whole Bible. I find it's an excellent way to study the Bible, the devotions as well. You can be reading, say, chapter you know, 60 in Desire of Ages, and it will tell you there at the footnotes, this chapter correlates with John chapter 10, Luke chapter 6. And then you can go to those passages of Scripture, read the chapter, and study the two of them together. It's an excellent way to go through the Bible. God has given to us a divine commentary on the Bible that we should not ignore as we study the Bible. It's an excellent tool. I didn't have it here on the, uh, on the screen, but it's an excellent tool to use. Next slide. Looking for the parallel passages, meditating, and then this one, as I've just kind of jumped myself, to find inspired commentary on the passage. You can find the spirit of prophecy on the Old or New Testament, or you can be reading the New Testament and it confirms something from the Old Testament. That's how you kind of bring the Testaments together. Or look at a prophecy in the Old Testament, and you see its fulfillment in the New Testament. Or, you know, you're reading in, where is it? You read it in Matthew chapter 2. It's around verse 14 or 15. Anytime you read this, it's always good to go back and look at the context. Say Matthew 2 verse, where is it? 14, when the Bible says, And they arose and took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Now, when the, when the New Testament says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, you know what do you, what, what's good to do then? To go back and see where the prophet said it in the Old Testament. Because when the New Testament says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet, is they quoting directly the Old Testament. Go read it. See the context. When Jesus says, it is written, go back and look at that text. Because Jesus was quoting a text from the Old Testament. See where it comes, where it starts. See where you can match the two of them together. And you start to see that the, the Testament, so to speak, they all join together. What should you not do as you're studying the Bible? A couple of things not to do. Number one, do not use a spirit of prophecy as a substitute for Bible study. Study the Bible first. Spirit of prophecy, 
to confirm, to back it up. If your only way that you can prove the 2300 days is to turn to chapter Holy of Holies in the Great Controversy, then you've missed something. It's easy just to read a quotation where it says, and the 2300 days finishes in 1844, da 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 da. But do you know the Bible study that goes along with it? Don't use a spirit prophecy as a crutch or a substitute for Bible study. Bible should always come first in our study, in our spiritual life. Point number two, what should we not do? Treasure shock value or oddity to try and prove you're clever. Or let me study the Bible to see if I can find something really weird, really different that no one else has studied. You're going against scripture because the Bible says there is no new thing under the You may think you come up with a new original thought. I guarantee you someone else has studied that before. It's not, you know. Don't study the Bible just to find something new or original. Because you'll start coming to some weird and wacky conclusions. And you'll start making jumps in your Bible study that are not sound. Like read this verse. You know, and then... You're just jumping. It's not sound. It's not consistent. What should else you not do? You shouldn't follow a man's thought uncritically. Someone sharing something with you, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to do that. I believe that. Uh-uh. Check it out. What does the Bible say in Acts 17 verse 11? What did the Bereans do? They checked what Paul said, and the Bible says they were more noble. Second thing you shouldn't do is reject someone's development of thought without even giving it a hearing. Someone has studied the Bible, or maybe they're sharing something with you. Don't just reject it outright. Give it a hearing. Check it out. Go into the Bible. See what it has to say. What else should you not do? Listen to teachers that are known to be causing division and problems. They're not the best people to teach you. Everywhere they go, they seem to cause division and fracture and create problems. It's probably best not to go and study with them. You know? Entertain foolish questions that require speculative answers. There's some things that the Bible just hasn't given us the answer to. Just hasn't. There's some questions that we don't know the answer to. Don't try and pull an answer out of a text that's so vague it makes you look like you haven't studied the Bible well. There's nothing ashamed to be saying, well, you know, I don't think the Bible answers that question. We'll find out maybe when we get to heaven. Search the Bible for evidence to support your position. That's not a good way to study the Bible. In other words, I have decided this is what I want the Bible to say. Now I'm going to go and find a text that supports that. Not sound. Rather... Don't even take a position until all the evidence is in. Let me see what the evidence has to say. I'm seeking what the Bible has to say. Now, I know what it says. Or use an obscure passage to try and explain a clear one. Now, as you're preaching or doing a Bible study, you teach us all the time that you've got clear texts and you've got ones that are maybe not as clear. Always stick to the clearer ones. If you're maybe studying a doctrinal issue or a prophetic issue, don't use the unclear ones to try and make you seem smart because you've brought out something that no one else has seen before. Additional thoughts, study when you're alert, your sharp is fresh, 
Start with the appropriate material. Memorize. Keep your mind uncluttered from wicked or vain thoughts. Find a private place. It's probably not best to study your Bible. Just sat in front of the television, eating your dinner while you're listening to your iPod. <laughs> Find a private place. Uncluttered mind. Give yourself sufficient time. And remember, like I said at the beginning, it's not always about quick answers when you're studying the Bible. Not always. You may be mulling over a passage of Scripture for a while. Maybe more than one day, maybe a week. You're still mulling over that passage of Scripture to see what God is saying in it and to you. Research your payday is always at the end, not the beginning. Those of you that research. Reread stories for new meaning. Study passages rather than verses. You start to see the connecting of the thoughts. Sometimes you're reading through, you know, and don't always just study just chapters. If you study a chapter, read on to the next chapter because the chapter divisions were given by who? Given by man. You know, I was reading John chapter 14 and it just gave me so much more insight when I read it without the chapter divisions. Because John 14 says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told. And I asked the question, who was Jesus talking to when he said, You. We say, ah, oh, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to us. No, he wasn't talking to us. If you go back and read the end of chapter 13, you realize that Jesus was speaking to Peter. In chapter 13, he says, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, no, I won't. And Jesus says, the cock will not, how it goes? The cock will not crow three times, and you will have denied me. Let not your heart be troubled. Which is like, wow. To me, it gave me so much more understanding of the passage when Jesus just says, you're going to deny me, let not your heart be troubled. Pray interactively as you read. Ask God what a phrase means. Help. Repent if needed. As I said earlier, carefully use faith-based commentaries. Ones that maybe aren't Adventist. And even early SDA pioneer books. Treat commentary as a friend, not a teacher. And remember, the closer you get to material that was once sealed, the less helpful non-SDA commentaries are. For example, the book of Daniel, chapter 8. The Bible says it was going to be sealed up until when? The time of the end. 1800s. So you read a Bible commentary that was written in 1500, it's probably not going to help you out, you understand? A couple other things. Curiosity. If you've got a question about something, maybe God has put that question in your mind to study the passage deeper way. Complex passages, you can sometimes work in reverse. It can help you out. Use a Bible dictionary for unfamiliar words. These are all just small pointers that can help you in your Bible study as you're studying the Bible, as you're going through these different passages of Scripture. Additional thoughts? Now we're blank. I hope these are just a few pointers that will help you. First presentation with your devotions and general principles of study, to have a vibrant devotional life. Second one, if we look at basic principles of Bible study, seven steps, questions to ask as you approach a passage of Scripture. Put these in practice. If you never have, this week, tomorrow, today, pick a passage of Scripture. Pray for the Lord to give you insight into one and approach it in a prayerful, humble way, asking what God can teach you. And I believe as you do so, you'll find your spiritual life will grow, your understanding of the Scriptures will grow, and as you look at these bigger, grander themes in the Bible, you'll start to see that the Bible is not isolated books on their own, but it's a grand theme. 
It's a big picture. And you'll start to see how it all pieces together. I pray that each and every one of you, in a month's time, in a year's time, your knowledge of the scriptures, your walk with the Lord will be closer and more vibrant than it is today. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we once again thank you for being our guide and our teacher. And Lord, it's our humble prayer that as we venture out, as we go back home after this youth convention, Lord, we have been blessed here. We have heard many messages that have uplifted us, that have inspired us, that have drawn us closer to you. And at the same time, Lord, we don't want to slip back into maybe the same rut that we were in before we came. And I pray, Lord, that as we go back home, that the Bible may be become real to each one of us individually, that it may stay real to each one of us individually, and that we may continue to find precious gems of truth from your word, that we may continue to have a vibrant walk with you, even when we're just on our own, in our bedroom, in our living room, with our Bible and you. Continue, Lord, to be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.